Psalm 136. If you um, struggle with a short attention span, this psalm might be a hard one for you to get through as you read it. Uh, It's the one with the refrain that appears in each verse. It appears 26 times. And in case your heart sank uh, when that realization settled in, oh, it's that one. (laughs) Oh, no. Uh, Let me try to help you just a little bit before we read it. Uh, Whenever I read this psalm, I am tempted to skip that refrain because it happens so many times. I'm tempted to skip it and just read the first part of each verse. It's the parts in between the refrain, parts that are not so repetitive. Uh, When I see the refrain, I feel like reading it once is probably a sufficient reminder. And uh, and I assume that I've understood it, and I just read what is the new stuff. But with uh, poetry like this, repetition, you've got to remember that's what the Psalms are, uh, poetry. Uh, Repetition isn't meant to be boring. It's meant to be emphatic. It's meant to punctuate. It's meant to stamp meaning on the poem, on the psalm in this case. So the repetition here isn't meant to be monotonous. It's not meant to be plodding. It's meant to lend a rhythm. It's like a heartbeat to the psalm, to bring this psalm to life in a a musical way, really. The repetition is meant to provide you with sort of a reference point for perspective on everything that the psalm is talking about. A reference point. It's kind of like the refrain is your home. It's your home base. It's your, it's your warm, bright home, and you're reaching out to the new parts of each verse and bringing them closer to turn them over and to appreciate them in the light of the home that the refrain is. And in doing so, as you come to appreciate all these things uh, that are happening in light of that refrain, you'll also grow in your appreciation of the light and the warmth of the refrain itself as your home. So God can take a refrain like this. He can take that which is, uh, we're not going to call it repetitive, it's familiar and it's foundational. And he can take that and he can make it new, he can make it deeper to us, he can make it more wonderful to us every time we hear it. It's it's like um, G.K. Chesterton theorized about the daily occurrence of the sun rising. And some might think that uh, that's a monotonous thing. And after hundreds and thousands and hundreds of thousands of times of the sun coming up, uh, that God himself might be bored with such a thing. But it's uh, it's due, in Chesterton's uh, theory, anyway, uh, his speculation, and I think it's good, it's due to God's abounding childlike vitality that he is strong enough to exult in what we would consider tedious and repetitive and monotonous and boring that he shouts to the sun every morning, do it again, like an excited child. And so God would have us uh, celebrate the truth of each verse here with the the same words, yet with fresh eyes, with fresh insight, with fresh enthusiasm. So as we read this, sorry, my voice is kind of messed up today. As we read this, we'll we'll read it together responsively uh, in a minute. Uh, Let's read it from the version that's printed in the bulletin because I've fine-tuned the translation here just a little bit. It's not what you would find in the ESV. I'll read the first part of each verse, and then together we'll read the refrain, what's in the italics in the bulletin. Uh, Learning to read the Scriptures 
is a spiritual exercise. So let's pray for the Holy Spirit's help. Let's pray now. Father, we pray that the reading, the hearing, the participating and speaking of your word would be ever new, ever fresh, ever insightful, ever wonderful to us. That as we come to your word, as always, we pray that you would overcome our resistance to coming to your word. That you would change us from the inside out, do that work that only your Holy Spirit can do, making us receptive and inclined to listen to your word and to be changed by it. We thank you for this help. Uh, We know that you offer exactly this kind of help, and so we pray in Jesus' name for it. Amen. Give thanks to Yahweh, for he is good, for his love is eternal. Give thanks to the God of gods. For his love is eternal. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. For his love is eternal. To him who alone does great wonders. For his love is eternal. To him who by understanding made the heavens. For his love is eternal. To him who spread out the earth above the waters. For his love is eternal. To him who made the great lights. For his love is eternal. The sun to rule over the day, for his love is eternal. The moon and stars to rule over the night, for his love is eternal. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, for his love is eternal. And brought Israel out from among them, for his love is eternal. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm, his love is eternal. To him who divided the Red Sea in two, For his love is eternal, and made Israel pass through the midst of it. For his love is eternal, but overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. For his love is eternal. To him who led his people through the wilderness. For his love is eternal. To him who struck down great kings. And killed mighty kings. For his love is eternal. Sihon king of the Amorites, for his love is eternal, and Og, king of Bashan, for his love is eternal, and gave their land as a heritage, for his love is eternal, a heritage to Israel his servant, for his love is eternal. It is he who remembered us in our low estate, for his love is eternal, and rescued us from our foes. He who gives food to all flesh. Give thanks to the God of heaven, for his love is eternal. This is the word of the Lord. So, I'll bet you never guessed what this psalm is about. Uh, His love is eternal. His love is eternal. Yahweh's love. The love of the one true God. Or as the ESV puts it, his steadfast love endures forever. That might be the more familiar way of hearing it for you. Uh, I translated it this way. Love, um, love or steadfast love, it, it, uh, it translates one word in Hebrew. It's a rich word. It's a rich word with a lot of meaning in it, which is why you sort of need a couple English words to translate it usually. It refers to Yahweh's committed love. 
His faithful love. His loyal love. His hesed love is His covenant love. He has made covenant promises to His people that, um, that we shall be His people and that He shall be our God. And in His great love, it's a covenant because He takes upon Himself all the responsibilities for making these promises happen for us. He takes upon Himself all the responsibilities. He takes upon uh, not only His part as the covenant Lord, but He takes on our part as the covenant keepers, those who keep the covenant. In Jesus Christ, God became a human to fulfill both ends of this covenant relationship so that all the good covenant promises of God could uh, be true for us. And He did that because of His hesed love. This, this word in Hebrew, chesed, his covenant love, it's his rock-solid devotion to be good to his people. To be good to his people. To fulfill all his good promises to us in spite of our not deserving it at all. Which is what you find throughout the scriptures. People who do not deserve God to be good to them. And yet he remains steadfast and loyal and faithful and committed to being good for, to them, to love them. And that means grace and mercy. So those words... Too, uh, sometimes in the English can translate that word hesed. Uh, it's his mercy. It's his, it's his covenant grace. And this love, uh, which I've, I've translated just as the word love, instead of steadfast love, is literally into eternity, which is why I've translated it eternal instead of it endures forever. <clears throat> and that's this sort of, his love is eternal, sort of reflects a, a more succinct, um, it's just a couple words in Hebrew, that refrain that we repeated together. And so we can, uh, we can pack those words full of meaning, right? So it, his love is into eternity. His hesed love is without beginning. It's as eternal as the Father's relationship with the Son before the world was made. It's as eternal as the Holy Spirit himself. And his hesed love is without ending. It will never waver, never falter, not a year from now, not a million years from now, not ever. <clears throat> as long as the Father loves the Son in the glory of the Holy Spirit, his hesed love is from everlasting to everlasting. It is eternal. It is into eternity. And here's what it really means uh, for us, especially using this psalm this morning, here's what it really means that Yahweh's love is eternal. Here's what it means that this refrain is the heartbeat of this psalm. It isn't just that his love is out there in eternity, that it's without beginning and it's without end in eternity. It means that his chesed love is always, period. It's always. It's in every moment of time. Every, every act. Yahweh always acts in love. He doesn't ever turn off his love and act in some other way. He always acts in his hesed covenant love. The triune God's love is so integral, it's so essential to his nature, that John writes, as we heard in our New Testament reading, uh, <clears throat> he, he writes with the, the astounding statement, and he writes it twice in in. First uh, John chapter 4, that God is love. His being is love. That's what it means for him to be the triune God, the Father and the Son loving one another in the, in the Holy Spirit. 
God's being is love. God is love. That's so essential to his nature. The, the eternal God, whose very eternal being, his eternal love, will never at any moment act in any way apart from his love. From his hesed love, which endures forever. Everything he does, he does in hesed love always and forever. For him to do otherwise would violate who he is. And he doesn't do that. And right there, we've said something so profound that it's worth contemplating for the rest of our lives. We'll never exhaust all the meaning of it. It can be a constant source of life and courage for us. And it should become the praising refrain of our whole lives. And our praise to God, our thanksgiving to God, this should be the refrain. Everything Yahweh does, he does in Hesed love, always and forever. His love is eternal. <clears throat> and the psalm is basically a call for all of us to confess that with thanksgiving. It's pretty simple. Give thanks to this one whose love is eternal. Give thanks to him because, for, his love is eternal. <clears throat> That's what the psalm is calling us to, is just to confess that that his love is eternal, and to confess it with praise, to confess it with thanksgiving. The psalm is teaching us to read all of God's works in light of his hesed love, in the warmth and light of that eternal love of God. And it gives us some idea of the shape and the definition of that love as, he, as the psalmist walks us through the story of God's works. <clears throat> so Yahweh's covenant love is the steady heartbeat in all the history of all of his wondrous works. His love is punctuating everything that he does. That's what the psalmist is teaching us to do. How to, he's teaching us how to read uh, what God has done in history. That's what's happening in the psalm. So the history of all his wondrous works is being unf unfolded like a scroll with the emphatic punctuation of the refrain stamping his eternal love on every single bit of it. The psalm begins in the first couple of verses as we've already begun outside of history, before history. In eternity, with Yahweh, the good God, the only God, the God of gods, the Lord of lords. That's superlative Hebrew language. He's the greatest God. He's the greatest Lord. And his love is eternal. It celebrates who he is, who he is in his being, his divine being, his divine nature, his essence, as the God whose love is eternal. And then it moves to his wondrous works as creator and then as savior of his people. And actually, uh, it sort of struck me first, for the first time as I read it this week, the structure of this, where it talks about who he is and what he's done in terms of his creation and his salvation of his people uh, and, and wrapping it all up with his love and being thankful. It's like, that's how I pray at the dinner table. And maybe that could be like a, a template for you to pray at the dinner table. We thank you, God, for who you are, what you've done for us. You've made us. You've delivered us. You've saved us for a relationship with yourself. You love us with a great love. Thank you. And it even wraps up with this talk about he gives food to all flesh. <laughs> so <clears throat> use this psalm, maybe a condensed version of it, at your dinner table. Uh, but it, it moves on to, to discuss his wondrous works as creator and savior of his people and all of these works are the outworkings of his great love, his hesed love. Verses 4 through 9. Uh, we're not going to walk through every verse, uh, but uh, 
as a group, verses 4 through 9, reflect the language and the order of the first chapter of the Bible, the beginning of history, Yahweh's creation of the world, the cosmos, his creation of the heavens and the earth. He alone is the creator who brings forth everything out of nothing because his love is eternal. That's what it says. He alone does wondrous works, these works of creation, because his love is eternal. It is because he is the God of eternal love. It's because he's the triune God, because he's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because he's that God and not some other God, because he's the God who is love, that his love poured out, that his love bubbled forth, that his his love is the fountain of creation. We can be thankful to him for everything that he's made. We can be thankful to him that this is the case, because if it were not the case, if it was not so, then we could never properly celebrate the things that are. Because the triune God of love has worked the wonders of his creation, his people can enjoy everything that he's made. His people can enjoy the cosmos as an act of his eternal love. All the space, all the places, all the motions of the universe, even time itself, which I think is, is reflected here in this language. It's kept in the courses of the sun and the moon and the stars. That's how we keep track of time, the motions of the universe. Even time itself, the creation of the heavens and the earth is an act of the love of this God who has utterly committed himself to his people unwaveringly committed himself to his people. That's the one who made this world. The world and all that is in it is no mistake. It is all the deliberate work of the God whose being is love. His covenant love is the bedrock foundation for all reality. His love comes first. His love initiates everything. His love is free. He's never compelled. He was never compelled to create the world. He did it because he wanted to. Because he's the God of love. His love is free. His love is not a response or a reward. His love creates that which is not. His love creates a new people who can receive his love with thanksgiving. His love sets us free from slavery. His love delivers us into new places in our relationship with him where we can celebrate his eternal love. That's what's pictured for us, really, in the rest of the psalm. It's pictured in the great event of salvation in Israel's history. You know, we've got all the scriptures together, the Old and New Testaments. The Gospels are the, the great salvation that we find in Christ. Well, in the Old Testament, the great picture of that, that was pointing ahead to that, it was the Exodus, when Yahweh set his people free. He delivered them from slavery in Egypt. He led his people through the wilderness. He defeated their enemies, and he brought them into their new home, into the place where he had promised to dwell with them. He had promised it to their fathers 400 years before, but he was faithful to keep those promises because his love is eternal. <clears throat> That's the salvation history that the psalm remembers with the heartbeat of the refrain stamping God's love on every part of it. 
God struck Egypt with terrible plagues because his love is eternal. God says his love isn't all puppies and roses. God's love isn't something to be trifled with. God's love is deadly serious, but make no mistake, when he, in verse 10, struck down the firstborn in Egypt, it's because his steadfast love endures forever. When he, in verse 15, overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, when he, in verses 17 and 18, struck down great kings and killed mighty kings, these were the outworkings of his faithful love to his people. That's what this psalm says. That's what all the scriptures say. Yahweh wrestled his people free from their oppressors, from the evil rulers of this world who stood between his people and the new places that he was going to bring them in his relationship with them. God brought his people into this new place. Uh, It says in verses 13 and 14, he brought them there through their baptism in the Red Sea as all the people of God, young and old, were baptized into this new relationship with God. He's taken them out of slavery. He saves them through the waters of judgment and out the other side. Verse 16, as he led them through their wilderness wanderings for 40 years, which generally are characterized as pretty, pretty terrible years in the life of Israel, suffering, confusion, complaining, and sin on their part, testing and testing and testing that they fail all the time. And God was with them. And God led them through the wilderness. It says in verse 16, and then in verse 21, God brought his people into this new place in their relationship with him as he plundered their enemies and gave their land to his people. Everything pictured here in Israel's salvation history that you can read about in Exodus and uh, Numbers, um, it was, big scary word, recapitulated recapitulated in Jesus on behalf of all of us as God's people. So that means, in Jesus, God did all that again. And he did it perfectly. In the perfect fulfillment of our salvation, bringing us all into new places, into a new world, in our relationship with him, where we can celebrate his love with thanksgiving forever. His love is at work in Jesus when Jesus was baptized in order to fulfill all righteousness on behalf of his people, Jesus was baptized as our champion, as our representative, as our vicar. His love was at work when he led Jesus into the wilderness to wander hungry, not for 40 years, but for 40 days, to be tested by the devil, where Jesus faced the great enemy of God's people, the devil himself, God's love was at work in Jesus, where we have failed, all of us, in the face of temptation. Jesus has won the victory on our behalf. He did it, not us. He kept up our end of this relationship with God, this covenant relationship with God, for us. Where we have doubted the steadfast love of God, Jesus resisted the lies and accusations of the devil, and he entrusted himself entirely to God. Jesus, who's God's own firstborn son, was struck down at the cross in the most terrible plague of wrath and judgment that the world has ever seen, that God has ever sent 
into the world. Jesus went to the cross in order to save his people, to set them free from sin and death, to set them free from all the power of the devil, to bring them into a new place. In their relationship with God, Jesus plundered the enemy, and he gave the spoils to his people so that we could live in God's love forever. It says in Colossians chapter 1, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness. That's what was pictured with Israel being delivered out of Egypt. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In Christ, it can be said that God has felled mighty kings before you. And he's driven them out of your way. The prince of the domain of darkness himself couldn't stop Jesus. Even the gates of hell can't stop his kingdom from advancing. This vicarious salvation that we find in Jesus and every moment of it, the devil's defeat is brought to you by the eternal love of God in fulfillment of his faithful promises to his people because that's who God is and he never wavers. And he keeps all of his promises. The constant praising refrain of Jesus' life has always been the love of God is eternal. Jesus is the eternal love of God come in the flesh, in person. And now his love, his eternal love, is our home, warm and bright. Now his love is the heartbeat of our history in the gospel. Now his love is the interpretive perspective that we can bring to everything that God does, everything that God does, even though it is beyond our comprehension how that can be an act of his love, now his love can be a constant source of life and encouragement and hope to us. It can become the way that we sing our thankful praises to him through faith in Jesus Christ, just as we, as we did, as we took it on our own lips, congregationally, responsively to all the acts of God, and praised him for his love is eternal. It is he who remembered us. Not just them thousands of years ago in ancient Israel. It's he who remembered us in our lowest state for his love is eternal. And rescued us from our foes, even from the devil himself, for his love is eternal. It's he who gives food to all flesh for his love is eternal. Everything Yahweh does, he does in Hesed love, always and forever, as long as the Father loves Jesus Christ, who now is seated at his right hand in the eternal glory of the Holy Spirit. He will love you with a committed love that nothing can stop, so all peoples everywhere are called to say, to give thanks to the God of heaven, for his love is eternal. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you are good beyond our comprehension. Your love is too great in every dimension of it for us to comprehend. We pray, as Paul does in his letter to the Ephesians, that you would grant us your Holy Spirit to enable us to know that love which surpasses knowledge, to see the height and depth and the width and breadth of it in Jesus Christ especially in his great and mighty works of salvation on our behalf. We pray that your love would be the new way that we would see the world, that we would see everything you are doing in the world, all of your mighty acts in the world, every moment, always and forever. 
your love is coming to us, and nothing can separate us from your love. Your love is great and terrible, and it's a fearful thing, a love that would even strike down your own firstborn at the cross in order to be good to us, in order to win eternal life for us, to forgive our sins, and to bring us to glory, even as you've brought your son Jesus to glory. We stand in awe before your great love. We scratch our heads in wonder about your great love. We rest in the warmth and light of your great love. And we look forward to seeing you face to face when all will be an expression of your great love that we can understand in the new heavens and the new earth when all things are restored. We long for that day to come. We pray that you would come soon, Lord Jesus, and bring your great love with you. We pray in your name. Amen. Thank you.